Well, welcome back to Two Pastors and a Mic. My name is Corey. And I'm Shanik. And we're glad that you joined us wherever you are, whether you're in your car, in a bubble bath, or at home. Thanks for tuning in. We appreciate all of your love and support. We thank you for all of you who have already left a review on Apple Podcasts. If you haven't, go to Apple Podcasts, leave some stars, leave a review. We would greatly appreciate that. And or share this on your social media platforms, text it to a friend. Seriously, we thank you. Yeah, and I'm just still going back to how you said bubble bath. Like, I don't know what you are thinking about right now, but apparently... You're thinking about taking a bath or someone taking a bath. I never, whoa, Bathsheba. I never even take baths, so I don't know why I said that. I just wanted to make it a little bit lighthearted because we are in uh, the middle of kind of a heavy topic. As a matter of fact, we're not going to be doing a question of the week this week. Let's just get it. Last week, we really talked about, right, what what inerrancy is. Uh, In that episode, we addressed the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy uh, we talked about inerrancy's roots, especially in America, and why this view is held so strongly. And this week, we're going to be talking about some of the problems with inerrancy and what to do with the Bible once we start wrestling with these critical problems. And I do want to just reiterate this right up front, that we do recognize right, that there will be some people that disagree where we're at with this ideology of inerrancy or this, Mm -hmm. this thought process that we're on. Um, but that's okay. And we're all on our own journeys and we just want to say, we appreciate you coming on this journey with us. And this might be something that you may need to wrestle with and for you to process on where you land and wherever that is, it's okay. Yeah, for sure. Because we recognize that this topic is touchy for some people and Maybe you believe this so heartedly because you learned it from someone you respect and honored and it was just passed down. But honestly, we're going to give some thoughts. Maybe you've never quite thought about biblical inerrancy this way. Um, last week, you know, we talked about there, there were two different types of inerrancy, the hyper-literalist view and then the non-literalist view. And so just so you know, like I, I kind of tend to put myself in the non-literalist view, like still still believe it was inspired but understand that there's a lot of flexibility in what we believe to be true or fact. And I think that was kind of the point. And I I bet once we, you know, unpack some of these ideas of our personal problems that we have with inerrancy, I think you'll begin, begin to understand a little bit why we believe this and maybe understand our journey a little bit, even if you disagree. And that's okay, because I think that some of the problems that we're going to unpack right here, right now is honestly what tends to cripple the bride of Christ. And so once we get okay and comfortable with some of these ideas, I think you'll find your faith better and stronger. Right. So let's talk about the problems. Go go right ahead with first thing. Yeah. So we talked about this last week. Mm-hmm. We mentioned the original manuscripts. And I don't know if you've looked at any church websites recently and did this. It, it became popular in the mid-2010s, uh, kind of influenced by the Gospel Coalition, where uh, when you look under what we believe in a church website— you get to the Bible, they'll talk about, you know, Scripture is inerrant, and they change that view from Scripture is inerrant to the original original manuscripts are inerrant. And th- honestly, it kind of bothers me. It might be a pet peeve of mine. Maybe I need to not die on this hill. But here's why it bothers me for two reasons. One, it's either pure ignorance, or two, it's manipulation. 
ignorance from this is what I've been taught, so I just believe it and I've never dissected it myself, or this is what you know the Gospel Coalition writes on theirs, or this is what this church that I'm trying to emulate my church like has, says about what they believe the Bible, so I just copy and paste, ignorance is bliss, even though ignorance is not bliss. Boom. Original man- manuscripts, it sounds right. And there's a pass, but not a pass for ignorance. Then there's the idea of manipulation. And here's why I think it's manipulated. If you just write this as what you believe and are aware that we don't actually have the original manuscripts, then you are recognizing that most of your common churchgoers won't know that fact. And so you have this as your church website of what you believe about the Bible, knowing that people aren't going to argue with you because it sounds good and it sounds true. The problem is, is the old, oldest manuscripts that we have are actually second century BC. Yeah. Are these the Dead Sea Scrolls it's they found parsh- recently? Partially, partially yeah. those? And so these manuscripts actually give us more complexities instead of actually taking away this idea that the Bible is fully inerrant. And so when we use this blanket statement of, oh, the, the Bible in the original manuscripts are inerrant, it's actually not a truthful statement because we don't actually have them. Yeah, and then if you follow that up with the idea of, okay, the Bible is inerrant, you, there are so many questions that then have to be asked, like, which Bible are we talking about, mm-hmm. right? What canon of Scripture? What translation specifically? Because translations are just typically done by a group of people who are doing their best, of course, to translate Hebrew and Greek without the benefit of those original manuscripts. And not to mention we, these people that do the translation, they do have their own denominational biases and their financial backing, which they then get paid to see scripture a certain way, you know, whatever they're attached to. And so if we think about it though, like the, the Bible or the versions, like there's the KGV Bible, right. And it had 80, 80 books originally. People people probably don't know this. The original KJV version, which I do understand that there's those fanatics that are like KJV only. Right. 1611 is when it was penned, had 80 books of the Bible. Right. So if you're paying attention, the Protestant church Bibles typically have 66 books. So what happened to those 14 books? Right. People don't like to talk about that or they're not aware of it. Right. And if you just think about how many discrepancies there are in which include which books to include in the canon, like the Syrianic version had 61 books. The Coptic version had 75 books. The Roman Catholic Church, their version of the Bible has 73 books. The Charismatic version has 76. The Ethiopic version has 81. The Orthodox version has 86 books. The Greek Greek Orthodox had 76 books. And as you pointed out, the Protestant version, which is the one that's mostly widely or yeah, most widely accepted today, uh, has 66. So which part of these are inerrant or not? Yeah. What about those 14 books usually called the Apocrypha, Mm -hmm. which was removed recently? And by recently, I mean just over the last couple hundred years. So yeah, which book? That's a great perspective. You probably never heard that before. Then you always hear this argument. What about 2 Timothy 3.16? And this is one that my mom always brings up. Uh, Paul is writing to his protege, Timothy. He says, you know, all scripture is inspired or God breathed. There's a lot of different takes on this passage of scripture. But again, we have to ask the, the question first, is what scripture is Paul talking about? Because the Bible that we know today didn't exist. Paul wasn't aware that he was writing scripture, let alone the fact that Paul never read the New Testament that we have today. So he most likely was talking about the Torah or the Old Testament that you have today uh, that includes the Psalms and the Proverbs and um, the major and minor prophets. 
So we have to ask that question. What, which, which scripture is he talking about? I know one of my mentors, I'm not going to say his name because I don't know if he wants to be put on blast, but he always talks about when, when you bring up this thing that Paul said, all scripture is God breathed. He said, well, yeah, some scriptures are God breathed and some scriptures aren't. Right. And you have to decipher what aren't because right. as we're going to unpack here in just a couple minutes, there are some discrepancies yeah. that you well, have. Well, also to the reason why he says that is because in the Greek language, the word is, is not in the uh, translation. So yeah. really that version or that scripture actually says all scripture God breathed is useful for correction, teaching, yeah. edification. So that means that there can be room that maybe there are some scriptures that are written that God didn't actually breathe them. Bam. Also inspired does not mean without error because human beings are God breathed, yet no one claims that we are inerrant. Just a thought. Hmm. That's something to really ponder for real. Ponder. If, yeah, I'm like, okay, yeah, we can move on. We can move on. We'll just drop little nuggets and let you just wrestle with that one. So then, then we have to, what you just said, unpacking 2 Timothy 3.16, is how do we define an error? And how many errors does it take for us to question this whole ideology about inerrancy? At least our hyperlistic literature or hyperliteral view of inerrancy, which is often taught in American seminaries today. Does it just take one error, hundred yeah. errors? Like how what many errors, error? what kind of an error? Right. Because there are some errors that if you just read uh, and we'll address some of them are easy to explain, easy to say that's not really an error. There are translation errors, which are common because, you know, Greek is a dead language. So of course you're going to get, you know, differences in yeah. what people think. A few think grammatical and, errors and with that and stuff like that. Yeah. Absolutely. So here's a, here's a couple of examples of what we mean by how many errors does it take for or how you, was an error defined or how was an error defined? Yeah. So Paul claims that the old covenant or the scripture that he was quoting in second Timothy three sixteen, he says in Hebrews eight, seven quote, for if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant or the old Testament scriptures, no place would have been sought for another, meaning his new Testament scriptures, which is really just Jesus. So if the old covenant was good, for us today, then there wouldn't have been need for a new covenant through Christ. So in other words, yeah, something was wrong. Something was it. wrong with our Old Testament scripture. The Moabites are bad people, and they are not allowed to dwell among God's people. Deuteronomy chapter 23. But then you have this story about Ruth, who is a Moabite, and it challenges the prejudice against the Moabites. People from Uz are evil, Jeremiah ch chapter 25. But then again, Job, you know, a whole book of the Bible, a man from Uz who is labeled the most blameless man on earth. That's a scripture verse we just right. quoted. So was he, is all, you know, or are all people from Uz evil or not? You have to wrestle with that. Yeah. No foreigners or eunuchs are allowed within the church, Deuteronomy chapter 23. But then an African eunuch, welcomed and not only welcomed baptized into the church in acts chapter eight so which is it are they allowed or not then god's people hated samaritans and they were justified in doing so but then jesus tells the story of and it's ironic the good samaritan which would have had his jewish audience shocked even before he told the story so a lot of errors there or a lot of understanding that the lens that which you look at scripture, the lens at which you look at people matter. And Jesus came to show us how to do that. So we can go through more inerrancies if you want. 
Yeah, well, I think if we... more errors. Yeah, so inerrancy really doesn't explain how the Bible behaves, right? Um, in this book, the Bible tells me so, right? He talks about how the Bible, this is Peter Eanes, right? The Bible is written in anthology over a thousand years ago. So biblical antiquity, ambiguity, and diversity are not just side properties, but windows because it, because it's old, right? You, you think that you can't understand everything, but when you actually look at it very subjectively, Mm -hmm. we find, right, that there are different orders of creation, found in even Genesis chapter one compared to Genesis chapter two. It yeah. tells the story a little bit different yeah. if you actually dissect it. One one story I think tells us that animals were created before humans. And then the other story tells us that humans were created before animals. Yeah. And how he put it. So also not only that, the different takes on Israel's Kings in the book of Kings, first and second and first and second Chronicles. Um, you think about the four gospels and how a lot of those stories necessarily Um, don't line up, even though they are about the same event. Um, In the New Testament letters, Paul had these exchanges with James, the brother of Jesus, and they're talking about Abraham, and they actually use Abraham in different ways and in different contexts, right? There there are various laws. In, In the case of just say Hebrew slaves, and this is according to Exodus 21, Deuteronomy 15, uh, Leviticus 25, And in those uh, specific chapters, there are all these laws and they claim to be mediated through Moses and spoken by God to actually justify slavery. Right. But I think this is a problem. Yeah, it's a problem because all three cases have different things in them and how you deal with slaves. Yet all three are mediated through Moses spoken by God. So how can they all be different? Right. So then you have Jewish and Christian approaches to the Bible throughout history. There's flexibility, debate, and dialogue and how we're going to approach just how we read, right, Scripture and the context and what it means. And then I know one of the things that I usually always go to, this is, um, I guess, one of those places where um, there is this blatant discrepancy because there was this guy, his name was David, and he took a census of the people. And in second Samuel chapter 24, um, it talks about how, um, God, right. Wanted him to take this sentence. And then we go over to Chronicles 21 and it attributes it to Satan yeah, because God verse. already told him not to do a census. So which one is it? Is it God or was it Satan that in you know, enticed David to take a census among the people. Yeah. Cause they that, say two different things. That's not a translation error. That is literally, it was changed. And these are one of those things that I think are really easy to explain away. We talked about this in episode 34 in our transition series on the podcast on how to read the Bible, recognizing that God progressively revealed himself. himself. Mm-hmm. And so Chronicles was written like three or 400 years after um, the book of Samuel. And so they would have had a better understanding of who God is, recognizing because beforehand in uh, Samuel, they believed that God was in charge of good and evil, right? everything. They attribute it to God. So that's why they think that God— Even in, was it Job, he gives and takes away. Right. Everything is attributed to God. Right. And so then they have a better understanding of God 300 years later because he's had more time to express himself and show himself and prove himself. And they realize, oh, wait, God's not the author of evil. Right. So, so we Satan attribute that have, to the Satan, which is, again, yeah, in Hebrew and Jewish thought is not necessarily a specific being. It's your ego to them. Again, we can debate and talk about what that means. 
but no. but it's you, one place where if you actually look at Second Samuel twenty four, yeah, they to, got it wrong. That was an error it. by saying that God, right, wanted them to take a sentence. Yeah, a census. Yeah, yeah. So. You have to wrestle with it. And this is why we talked about, you know, just two episodes ago about biblical versus Christ-like. If we want a God of peace, you can find him in the Bible. If you want a God of war, you can find him in the Bible. If we want a compassionate God, he's there. If we want a vindictive God, he's there too. If we want a God demanding blood sacrifice, guess what? You'll find him in the Bible. And if you want a God abolishing blood sacrifice, he's also in the Bible. And so that is stuff that you have to wrestle with. That's why it's like, we don't want you to live biblically. We want you to live Christ-like, and those two aren't always the same. And so the real problem with inerrancy, honestly, in my opinion, it's a category mistake. When we, you know, put inerrancy versus errancy, it's not necessarily one versus the other, because sometimes we're not looking at an error in the text, but rather just an ancient way of speaking and understanding culture. And when we voice it one or the other, I think it doesn't actually allow us to dialogue and wrestle with the hard scriptures that we read every single day. And so, yeah, I think we need to stop doing that. We need to recognize that there's a lot of analogy. Is that how you say that word? An analogy. An analogy. That's what I meant. And there's a lot of language analogies. that uses analogies and metaphors when speaking about the scripture. Uh, use, uh, Peter Eanes uses this example. I thought it was brilliant. Uh, a portrait or any piece of art, you look at it subjectively, like you already said earlier, but we value different aspects of it, and it's okay. You know, how is this piece of art affecting you? What does this mean to you? And I think the Bible, that's one of the methods of even reading scripture, is okay. You can look at a verse completely out of its context if it encourages you, and that's okay. It's part of recognizing that God is alive and active in you with his spirit. And how you address certain passages of scripture, depending on your own cultural experiences and your own understanding and circumstances, you can read some things out of context and find comfort in them. And yeah. I think God's okay with that. Yeah, for sure. And of course, and this is what Peter Ean says, he says, it's bizarre when people read stories in the scriptures in which the Lord is portrayed as commanding his people to murder, especially women and children. And then people don't question that at all. But when someone points out that God is fully revealed and perfective or perfectively, perfectly, or perfectly, there you oh go. my gosh, there we go. And perfectly dispa- displayed in Jesus and that God, you know, would never do that or command it. Man, I'm just totally jacking that up. That, that I love this quote. I want to make sure I get it right. Let me back up. Right. Hold on. Who's perfectly displayed in Jesus. Perfectly. You did it again. I did. Do you want me to read it? Yeah, you read it. <laughs> It's a bizarre thing when people read stories in the scriptures in which the Lord is portrayed as commanding his people to murder, especially women and children. And people don't question that at all. But when someone points out that God is fully revealed and perfectly displayed (laughs) in Jesus and that God would never do that or command it, you're accused of denying the inspiration of scripture. Maybe pointing out that scripture, particularly in the Old Testament, very often bears out the historical and cultural beliefs of its authors and not liberal theology, which denies inspiration. Rather, it's simply an undeniable fact, expected of students of the Bible and part of the inspiration process. The goal of Scripture is to inherently point us to Jesus. Therefore, our interpretive methods should arrive at conclusions which look like the person of Jesus. Yeah. Does it look like Jesus or not? I mean, at the end of the day... 
I know this is like a topic that's debated and people like sometimes people are very passionate about this. For some reason, I'm just not though, because at the end of the day, I'm still someone who, and we're going to talk about this in a minute, who just believes, right, that the word became flesh, dwelt among us, and now we are indwelled with his spirit and we have the spirit who is the truth to guide us into all truth. And so I don't know, but we do need to talk about life after this idea of inerrancy and and what to do that. So just kind of working out the nature of scripture, um, how it needs to just be a part of life and our faith. And we need to kind of ask questions like, what is the Bible and what do we do with it now? Right. Um, basically, and I know that again, this comes from, from Peter Eanes, but he has kind of three different models of scripture because, and he, and he goes through this and we want to go through it with you because basically, right. Is expending all this effort on inerrancy, what God in the Bible are really about? I don't think so. Yeah. And so basically he has just a few different models. The first one, and, and I'll go over this quickly and then you can take the next two. But the first one is just the wisdom model. And this is just embracing the Bible's antiquity, ambiguity, and diversity. We engage the text. We wrestle with it. We debate with it. We learn from it. We even see this among the Bible's writers, right? We must table the question, how do I know what to believe as much as possible? Because that is not the starting question. You can get there. How do I know what to believe? But you don't start there, yeah. right? This idea of, of wisdom, wrestle, debate, learn, engage. It's, it's a lifelong process. Yeah. And the other two are just the incarnational model and the ecclesiastical model. Incarnation model just being in the same way that Jesus is human and divine. As an analogy, the Bible is also human and divine. The Bible looks the way that it does because it was produced in human cultures. So we should not expect more from the Bible than we do from Jesus. Jesus was not devoid of his humanity, and neither is the Bible. And then also the ecclesiastical model is the body of Christ is made up of so many unique individuals, just like the writers of the Bible. They had different voices, experiences, cultures, ages, times, personalities. So reducing the Bible to error or not error is actually a bit insulting if you think about it. And so I just believe that there's a better God, a better faith, and God is not behind us in the Bible, in an ancient world, in an ancient culture. No, he's alive and active in me today, moving me forward, allowing me to wrestle with things that I think don't make sense, allowing me to question things that, at least in my upbringing, I was taught not to question, just to believe the inerrant word of God. And when you just blanket statement that, you don't allow room for dialogue. You don't allow room for growth. You, uh, in my right. opinion, your faith gets, um, how do you say it? Your faith just gets like stomped. And it's like, no, you have to believe exactly like your teachers do, believe exactly what they think inerrancy means, believe exactly what they think the Bible means and their interpretation. Yeah. I think this is a good time to stop too, to really reiterate the point too, that's like, we actually do love the Bible. Love it. We, we love those models we just talked about. We love studying with it, engaging with it, seeing how it plays out in everyday life. Like absolutely like get so encouraged by it. It isn't something that necessarily will pull me down. It like, as I get in and study it, it encourages me. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but here's the key with this. And, and this is something that Don Keithley actually said. He said, if you need the scripture to be inerrant in order for you to value it, receive revelation and learn how to live, 
then you have confused the roles of scripture and the spirit of truth, right? Scripture should open your spirit to his spirit, not replace it. And I love that. It's pretty spot on. Yeah. Seeing the Bible as an object of continual reflection and discussion in an ever-changing world that connects us with others across space and time, if, if you're continually reflecting and having real discussion, that means that you're taking the scriptures very, very seriously. Not taking the scriptures seriously is just blindly believing something and not actually wrestling with some of the deep and hard questions that the scriptures actually should bring to the surface if you're allowed to question some things. And Brian Quincy Adams, he's quoted as saying this, he says, what I don't understand, frankly, is the people who say they love the Bible but refuse to take it seriously, who refuse to see it for what it is, who reject historical criticism, and who fail to consider social and historical context and the real lives of the human authors and communities that gave them birth, using the Bible this way as a magic book, claiming it is without any human error or human mistakes, using your own canon within the canon while claiming to value each verse equally— all of that is not loving the Bible. It's loving your own reading and interpretation of the Bible. Hmm. And I, I love that thought process because the whole point of taking these last three episodes to to wrestle with this question, it wasn't to be dogmatic. It wasn't to be like, you need to be questioning your Bible. It was just allowing you that time and space to question it so that, in my opinion, your faith can grow. Because I will go on record as saying this because— I do want to be careful because there's a lot of hills I don't want to die on. But holding the scripture as an errant, in my opinion, is the number one thing you have to let go of to find Jesus as a real and loving and intimate father. Yeah. And not just Jesus, because we can see Jesus this way, but that, right, he is the exact representation of our father. father. According to Hebrews. Right. And so being able to see God in that way, yeah, we do have have to let go of some stuff. So here's how we're going to end this episode. Corey, because we've wrestled with this a lot, we've lived in this, we've processed this, we know the questions that get arise. So I'm mm-hmm. going to ask you those questions and you yep. tell me how to respond because as our listeners are listening and maybe trying to process this on their own, they might have these exact same questions. So you'll actually get it, you know, get the opportunity to share a response that might yeah. help or it probably uh, wouldn't, but that's okay. At least it'll give them food for thought. How about that? So here's the questions that arise from this discussion on inerrancy. The first thing, the first question. So Corey, how do we know what to believe and what is right then? Yeah, honestly, it's a really good and fair question. I think the answer is less important to the reality of how you treat others. So like, yeah, we can talk about doctrine and theology. We can agree and disagree all day long. I love these conversations. Let's go get coffee. Call me. Let's have a conversation. But at the end of the day, do you love people well? Apologetics will say that this isn't a good enough answer, but it really is the only answer that matters, honestly. is, And, you know, we talked about, Jamie says, even on hard topics, pick the one that looks most like Jesus and believe that. And that it really is the only thing that matters. In fact, I'll use this illustration. I'm not going to say names because I don't want to name drop here, but there's a very well-known pastor and I used to work at his church and I had some opinions about the way that he led. I went on a mission trip with his wife. It was only me, his wife, and our photographer. I was the the muscle to carry the photographer stuff. So I wasn't like spending alone time with his wife. We, we were just there. How she spoke about her husband for me was all I needed to know what kind of man he was. And from that, since that day, 
even though I might have some judgments on leadership or some judgments on how they might lead their church, I will never have a judgment against him again. Why? And I know this was like 10, 11, 12 years ago. The way that his wife spoke about him shows his integrity, how he treats her, how well he does behind closed doors. Because I've been around people whose their wives don't have nice things to say about their husbands. And usually it's the truth. But the fact that she could honor him without him ever knowing about those conversations, that was like all I needed to hear. And it is kind of like a, uh, I know I'm kind of rambling right now, but that's just a, a true sign of, do you know Jesus? And if you do know Jesus, your life will de- be different. Right. You'll be restorative. You'll be graceful. You'll be kind. You'll be patient. You'll be the fruit of the spirit. Like all those things, let's, let's talk about and disagree about scripture. Do you love well? Because yeah. that's the only thing that matters. Because at the end of the day, there will never be error in walking out love. That's quotable. So the next question that people might have as well. So if you take away the idea of inerrancy. Which I would say probably just the hyper-literalist view of inerrancy. Right. So if we take that away, then aren't you taking over the authority of what's right and wrong? What's true and not true, yeah. That's and a, what's that's, true and what's not true? That's, uh, again, another valid question. And I don't want to just dismiss these questions. Uh, I don't believe that question ever really goes away, but I believe the answer to it, again, rests in Jesus. And people will say, well, how, do you, how can you trust Jesus if he's in the Bible? Because I've had a real-life experience with Jesus. The Jesus of the Bible isn't staying in the Bible. The Jesus of the Bible is alive and active and real to you. And so, yeah, him being the exact representation of God, I think he gives us the authority to question certain things in the scripture. If if you see something in the Old Testament that says, God commanded me to do this, and then what you see them saying or doing doesn't look like how Jesus would act, I think it's expected of you to question that. Yeah, I think it's okay for you to deny that that was really God. Because oftentimes you didn't hear from a prophet who heard from God. You heard from an angry prophet who had their own historical context of what they thought life was like. Right. And this idea of taking over authority of what's right and wrong, true and not true. At the end of the day, like right in creation, if we do go back to that story, like, right, they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Like we weren't supposed to have authority over what's right and wrong. We were supposed to have authority and how well we loved others. Oh, that's good. And so if you think about it, like even Paul, like, and this is a, a verse that just has really been guiding my life right now. It's Galatians five, six. And Basically, it says, for in Christ, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. Yeah. Like the only thing that counts in your life, it's not if, you know, you're wrong and right on the idea of, you know, inerrancy and all this other like, you know, ideologies. We can talk about all the other doctrines, but what we have to get right is our faith, right, in Christ is expressing itself in love back to that answer to the first question like are we loving people well yeah because at the end of the day that is really what matters only thing that matters it's not love god and love people it's love god by loving people right and even so we sign off every day and we'll sign off here in just a second but it's not that so you as a listener i want you to hear this even for you it's not that you're bad and it's not that you're good take those things off the table you are loved period. So with that, remember that you're loved and there's nothing you can do about it.